Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. The two big intellectual difficult we're looking at in the book of Daniel, a series called Thrive, How Do You Thrive in a Culture That's Gone Crazy? So we're looking at Daniel chapter 5 today, and Daniel chapter 5 helps us answer you know, two of the most difficult intellectual problems for believing in God, by the way, God who is all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful. How can an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's the first problem people have with the existence of, that, of the God that's defined in the Bible. Now, that question has a twin brother. How can an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, why, why do good things happen to bad people, Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? That comes first and foremost, the existence of evil. But also, why why do evil people prosper and seem to get away with it? And this this question is as old as evil itself. Look at Psalm chapter 73, right? A very strong believer in God says, you know, truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet are almost, almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And here's why. For I became envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever done that? For, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and, and, and not stricken like the rest of us, right? They're, I'm sorry, they're fat and sleek. They are not troubled like others. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Well, Daniel's going to help us live in this paradox of, of God being good and knowing and loving, and yet the wicked seem to prosper. And we're going to look at how to thrive in a culture where, it, 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 by, all, you know, by all accounts, it looks like the bad guys are winning. I mean, think, of the, think of the context, just for the sake of reviewing as well, of Daniel's audience. This is an Old Testament book. Think about who's reading this. this is, these are the people that used to live in Jerusalem. Babylon takes over the Middle East, and they, they, plumb, they, they, they plunder Jerusalem. God's holy city. God's holy city is conquered by Babylon. And not only that, they're holy, the place that's holy and sacred, the temple, right? It's, it has all its goods stolen from them. Like, like pirates, they go through there, and they don't care. They just take it and then, and then burn the temple down as they leave. They, they, they have left the city smoldering. And, and Israel is wondering, in, in light of the promises of God and especially his favoritism towards this special city, Jerusalem, and that place called the temple, and how he's left it for these, for these men to destroy, they're wondering, where is God in this? Is he powerful? Is he loving? Right? Is he not knowing? So one of the things we've been learning, that, that's, who he, that's who Daniel's writing. One of the things we're learning is we don't need more faith to survive or to, rather to thrive in Babylon. We need more God. We need, to just, we need to understand who God is. We need to broaden our imaginations of who he is by who he defines himself to be, by the way, not who we want him to be but how he defines himself to be. And so, in other words, the idea is, going back to the problem, we need a more loving God and a more knowing God and a more powerful God. This is the God that Daniel served and enjoyed. Okay? It's, not a more, it's not bigger faith. It's, it's a bigger God. And when we look at uh, 
the first few chapters, we're looking at how God is quietly, doesn't have to be demonstrative, he's quietly showing himself who he is. First four chapters of Daniel, we learn that God is uh, showing up and he's, he's being faithful in his caring of those who have resolved in their heart not to defile their body. He shows himself as a provider and, and making them well. He shows himself in their presence, right? In chapter, I think it's chapter 3, he's in the presence of the furnace with them. He is with them in the furnace. So he's not abandoned them at all. So chapter 4 is interesting because now it's specializing in this theme that God is still in charge. He still rules the universe. No one stays his hand. No one says to God, what are you doing? And how does he do that? Well, in chapters 1 through 4, there's a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And each of, the, each of those chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has a chance to repent. He has, a, he, has a, he has a chance to convert. He has a chance to learn that God is the God of the universe, and he is to be enjoyed and worshiped and served. And Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he doesn't learn much in the first three. And so chapter four, we learned last week that he is, he is Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he is frightened, and then he is warned that if he doesn't come to a new understanding of the power of God's strength and holiness, then he will go insane, and he will think he's a cow, and he will eat grass off the ground, and he will be showered by the dew in the morning, and he will stay a cow. This is the story of the prodigal cow. You've probably read about this. This is the prodigal cow. And when, it, when he comes to his senses, then he will be released from his insanity. And after seven years, he realizes that God is a great, big, powerful God that rules all the kingdoms and he's just a little bitty man. Now listen, that chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar bragging about his experience in being humiliated. He is telling the world about his conversion. It, this is his born-again moment, and he can't wait to tell people and praise God that he's great and he's not. And I'll tell you this, because we know this from chapter 5. He told his friends, he told his family. They knew about the cow story. Hey, hey, Grandpa, can you tell us the cow story? Tell me again about how God changed your soul. And tell us, you know, use the voices again. I want you to moo like a cow, okay, Grandpa? And he did. He did. That's one through four. It's about God's power. It's about his bigness. Chapter five, it's a different lesson, okay? The message in chapter five is God's judgment. That's what we're going to learn today. We have a different king. It's going to look like a very similar story, but it has a different ending because it has a different king. And, and we're talking about justice now because if God is all loving, he must be just. If God is all loving, he must be just. If, if sin goes you know, unaccounted for, right, if, if evil is never checked, if ruthlessness is running wild, then what is the purpose of grace? What is amazing about grace if there's no justice? And where can there be love? Where can there be love unless there's justice? We'll look at that today. Now, before we can even read the first verse, we have to, I have to give you somewhat of a history lesson because the context is going to drive our lesson today. Chapter 5 comes about 30 or 40 years, 30 years after chapter 4, we have a, a whole new situation before us, okay? Daniel now is about 80 years old. He was there almost at the beginning of the Babylonian reign, and he's going to be here 
chapter 5, on the last day of the Babylonian reign. There's a new king. Uh, his name is Belshazzar. Now, Bel in your Bibles, it'll say uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. That's kind of a figure of speech back then. Maybe a study Bible will tell you. Nebuchadnezzar is his grandfather. So, uh, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's, uh, the writer is going to be sending us signals so that, emotionally speaking, you resent this person. You can't stand. He's 36 years old. He knows everything. He's pompous. He's decadent, right? He's, he's arrogant. He, even his name means uh, God protects this king. If you remember, if you ever watched the movie uh, The Gladiator, remember the, the Caesar that kind of takes over? Remember how much you hated him and how much he would do different things and it'd get creepier and, and you couldn't wait? Spoiler, that he got killed at the end? Okay, so that's how, you, that's how you're supposed to feel about this, this new king, Belshazzar. And listen, when he, he was about 14 years old when his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar died, but know this, he knows the story of his father, grandfather's conversion. He knows the story of the greatness of God, and he resents it. He resents it. Now, more context. Persia is the next coming uh, kingdom. Uh, they're north of Babylon. And King Cyrus is making his way south, and he's, he's winning. He's winning the war. It's got to the point that now he's surrounded. The Persian army has now, Medo-Persian army has now surrounded the town of Babylon, not the country of Babylon uh, or, the, or the province, but the city itself, okay? And, but, but that's okay because it's all safe in Babylon. It's all safe in Babylon. And if you remember, we've talked, Babylon was a fortified city, maybe like none other in the history, you know, prior to, right, uh, the first century. Here, here, there was, let me just tell you about, if you, want to, if you want to attack the city and win, you had to, first of all, get past their moat and then to their huge walls that were 87 feet wide. Four chariot lengths could circle this, 14 square miles. Basically, the whole town is inside this exterior fortified wall that's 87 feet thick. The, the, this wall is over 100 feet tall. Right? If, you, if you think you can get past that, it turns out you fall on the other side of that. That's just no man's land because there's an inner wall. And, and inside, on the inner wall, there, there are over a hundred outposts and stations, of fortified stations for, for the army, the Babylonian army, just shoot down on you. Some of those stations were 300 feet high. So you would, you'd climb that first wall after you got through the moat and get trapped in between, and then you'd be destroyed there. The, uh, um, you, you, you couldn't starve them out. <laughs> the Euphrates River came in from the top and went down through the bottom, and they, and they built the city around it, and they put you know, giant iron gates into, underneath the wall and into the Euphrates River. Point is, they had unlimited supply of fresh water, fresh fish. They had their own ecosystem. Scholars said that they could last easily. Everyone in the town could last easily 20 years. You, you, you just couldn't get past them. Now, Persia has been around them already at this point for about four months. There was, there was this one weakness, maybe. There was an exhaust vent that ran right to the reactor core. And if you had an X-wing fighter, you could drop two torpedoes in there, but no, nah, nobody could do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the picture you're supposed to be feeling, this, this, this place that couldn't be beat. Okay? That's what's taking place. That's the context. That's where verse 1 of chapter 5 picks up. And then Belshazzar, because of his safety, because his name means the gods protect this king, is having this lavish, extravagant party with over a thousand people in attendance. 
all the royal family, all the military leaders, all the political leaders, and a lot of women. Technically, this is probably closer to a cultic orgy. Okay? And he's called that because there's no worries. There's no worries. Persia's at his doors, but there's no worries. Then, in this dark, demented moment, in, in, in the midst of his drunkenness and boredom, he, he says this. He says, I command that, that someone go to the warehouse and get the vassals, the utensils uh, that were in the temple in Jerusalem to be brought in here, and I command the lords and the wives and the girlfriends to all be drinking a toast to our gods. Now, if you remember chapter 1, verse 2, when they, when they pilfered Jerusalem, they went into the, whole, into the holy place, the temple, and, and to just show that our God is better than your God, they took all the valuables, Nebuchadnezzar did, and he put them somewhere basically in storage. Sixty-five years they've been sitting there collecting dust. And now, during this cultic orgy, this man says, you know what? I remember my grandfather saying something about that. And here's what we're going to do now. I want you to listen for repetition in the Bible when something is repeated. It's amplifying the point. And I want you to, I'll, I'll read this, we'll read it together. But listen to what he's saying and why he's telling them to do this. That's the motive behind it. We'll look, we'll look and see. Verse 2. Now, under the influence, of, he says he's drunk. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords and his wives and the concubines, those are the girlfriends, might drink from them. So they brought the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and the lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised their gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. See the repetition? See the amplification? See how horrendous this crime is? This, right? this is blasphemy at a whole different level, right? That's an easy thing to see right there. It's blasphemy. All your God can do is provide some kind of goblet to hold the wine that I'm going to toast my gods to. Second thing, in the bigger context here, he knows about the prophecies that Persia would take over Babylon. He knows about the Daniel stories and the statue that we saw earlier, and it would be Persia would be coming up next. Persia's at his door for four months, and he's having a toast using the utensils of the holy place of the prophet of that God. He is disregarding and thumbing his nose in everything that, this, that Jehovah stands for. What does it say? That pride is their necklace and violence is their garment. What does that mean? Pride is their necklace, violence is their garment. They wear it on the outside, right? They're just, he's just beaming with this. You know, his, his grandfather did whatever he wanted, but his grandfather never crossed this threshold. And I mean, even in light of his most recent defeats to Persia, in light of, right, they're at his gate, he doesn't care. And here's what happens. He stands up, he grabs that goblet from the holy place in the temple of God, he holds it up and says, let's have a toast to our gods of gold and silver, and, and then it happens. That's when it snaps. Chapter 5, verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall in the royal palace. 
next, right there next to the lampstand. And the king was watching the hand as it wrote, and the king's face turned pale, and his thoughts terrified him, and his limbs gave away, and his knees knocked together. <laughs> yeah, nobody's, who's crowing now? So he's standing up for this toast, and then this giant, I mean, the, their auditorium was bigger than ours, and this giant hand wa- shows up on one side and starts scribbling on the wall. And now this proud and mighty king, his knee, he literally, his knees buckle and he falls down. And then he starts screaming to everyone. He starts screaming, what's written on the wall? I don't understand those words. Get somebody in here. And they call everybody up. You know that story. This is maybe the third time we've heard it, almost word for word. Nobody can interpret what's, what's been written on this wall. And he's, he's extremely afraid. And then here comes the, the queen mother. This is Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. This is Belshazzar's mother. Okay? I, think, I, think she's, I think she loves God. I think she's a believer in Jehovah for a few reasons. One, they had to go get her. She came in. She wasn't going to this gluttonous, idolatrous worship orgy. Second, she keeps calling Daniel by his, his Daniel name, right? his Jewish name. And the way she talks about him, she's heard the stories from her dad. She's told the stories to her friends. She knows who the real God is. And so, so uh, anyway, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, daughter, this, the queen mother, she comes in, verse 11 says this. Now, listen, wait, 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 I can, I can help you with this. There is a man in your kingdom, long forgotten now, who's endowed with a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, grandfather, he was found to have enlightenment and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of, of God's. Your grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made him chief among his magicians and his enchanters and his Chaldeans and his diviners because an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this man, this Daniel. Now, let Daniel be called. Let him give you an interpretation. That's a person that knows God. Daniel is 80 years old and clearly He's been forgotten. They moved on. And this 35, 36-year-old king is going to bring him in now. And now Daniel walks in. Everybody's dressed up. Right? This is the big banquet that the king invited everyone to. He shows up. There's a thousand of the most powerful and important people in this room. And so the king has to establish dominance. They need him. They're calling upon the prophet of the God they've been mocking. And so Belshazzar has to make sure, you know, his, we, he just needs to make sure that you're still hating him, okay? That's what's happening in verse 13. He says, he's, I mean, just picture him holding one of these chalices, right? He's just swirling his wine in one of these beautiful gold mugs from the temple. And, and then so then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to Daniel, uh, so you're Daniel, uh, weren't you one of the exiles from Judah whom my grandfather, the king, brought you over from Judah? He's, yeah, I've, I might have heard something about you. Oh, you were on the losing team a long time ago where we pilfered your temple and we pulverized your city and all that's left is hot burning coals that's you, right, Daniel? And Daniel's thinking, is that the most holy God's chalice you're holding in your hand? 
The king tries to reward him. He promised rewards to anybody that could interpret the writings on the wall. And, and Daniel said, and he says to Daniel, look, if you tell us what's written on this wall, I'll give you a royal purple robe that no one gets to wear but you. I'll give you a royal gold chain that no one can wear but the king. And I'll promote you to the highest office in the land. And just to get you understanding, all right, what kind of attitude Daniel has in this, this is his response to the reward money. Verse 17 says, And then Daniel answered in the presence of the king, Let your gifts be to yourself or give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the the writings to the king and let him know what the interpretation is. You could hear a pin drop. Again, there's a thousand people that came for a drunken party, a, a cultic ritual. Now they're stone cold sober. This man walks in. He's promised everything that they would die for, or maybe more appropriately, kill for, a close relative. They would live their whole lives for this robe, this chain, and this promotion. And he says to them, don't want it, don't care, give it to somebody else. And here's why. This is the last meal. This, this, if you want to thrive in Babylon, you've got to live every day like it's your last day. Every meal like it's your last meal. Because when you do, when you start, you start getting what's called an eternal perspective on, thing, on things. Let, let me tell you something. It does, when, when you're having your last meal, it, does not, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You're probably going to be wearing somebody else's pajamas in a hospital, okay? They'll be recycled when you're done. doesn't matter what you're wearing. Doesn't matter what jewelry you have on. Doesn't matter your bank account. Doesn't matter your rank at the office. None of these things matter. You want to thrive in a crazy Babylonian culture? Don't take on their values. Be willing to give them away. That doesn't matter. I don't care. Not from here. Don't care about your caste system that I'm not giving my life for. It won't hurt someone for this. That's what he's doing here. <laughs> he's saying, Whatever. Now, he's going to tell him the writing on the wall and what that means, but he, he's not going to, he, before he does that, you have to understand, he's going to give him a little sermon. The sermon is because God is bringing justice, and like a good judge, he's going to say, here are the crimes against you. Here's what you did to deserve what you'll be getting. So that's why, and then I'll just read it. It's, it's so well done. Forgive me for this, but I'll just read. This is the statement of, of crimes against Belshazzar. O king, here, know this. The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of this greatness that God gave him, all the people, all the nations, all the languages trembled and feared him. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened and he started acting so proudly, he was disposed from being his king of his kingly throne and his glory was stripped from him. You know this story. And he was driven from human society, and his mind was made to be like an animal, and he was dwelling among the wild asses, and he fed on the grass right next to the oxen, and he was bathed by the dew in the morning, and until, until he learned that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals, and he has set everything underneath him. That's what you know to be true. And you've thumbed your nose at this. And therefore, look, 22, and you, Belshazzar, his grandson, you have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all of this, 
You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vassals of his temple have been brought in before you, you and your lords and your wives and your concubines, and you've been drinking wine in them, and, and, and you've have, you're praising gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. These things don't even see or hear. But the God in whose power is your very breath and to whom belongs all of your ways, you have not honored. You've picked the fight with the wrong God. These are the crimes against you, and you knew it. And so, here's what the words are. Many, many, tekel, paris. Many, many, tekel, paris. Many, many. What does that mean? It means your day, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and you've run out of days. It's an hourglass, and the last sand just fell. What does the tekel mean? It means, he's interpreting this, the tekel means, he says, you have been weighed on the scales, insert justice, you've been weighed on the scales of justice, and you've been found wanting. This is judgment day. And finally, Paris, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Parson is what is interpreted as it's a divided kingdom. The promise that was made to your grandfather in that prophecy, that the Medo-Persian will take over, oh, that's happening too. You've run out of time. You've run out of arrogance. Right? You've been found lacking. And there's nothing left of Babylon. Now, what is extremely strange, and is show, it is to show, I think, it is to show the level of hubris and narcissism of this man, he still rewards Daniel. Did you just hear it's over? Yeah, whatever. So he gets the purple robe, he gets the gold chain, gets the title. You win. Congratulations, you interpreted the wall. Now let's get him out of here and let's move on. He still doesn't, get, he doesn't grasp it. I, I'll, 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 bet, I'll, bet, I'll bet Daniel, before he got out of that palace, was taking that stuff off and leaving it on the ground. What is this, Confederate money? <laughs> what difference is any of this going to matter in a few hours? Herodotus, like the, I think maybe the first historian, Right, Herodotus tells us what happens here, right? This, this, this fortified city that's impenetrable. Here's what the Persian army did. Their engineering team figured out they could reroute the Euphrates River, and they sent it into a channel that had dried up and rerouted it around. And so the riverbed going right through the center of town went dry. Now, the rest of the army, was half of it was north and half of it south, and they came in the, where right, it's underneath the wall. Babylon was so arrogant, they didn't lower their iron gates. And so they just walked right in to Babylon. Herodotus says this. He tells of the final, I don't know, battle, if you want to call it that. He says when they walked into the palace, there were a thousand men and women in there still having a fun time, still hammered, stupid, drunk, still worshiping false gods, if from a military standpoint, I don't know much about that, but I've seen movies. But if, if you walk into a room and there's a thousand people in there and it's the royal family, it's the military bosses, right? It's the scholars. It's, it makes for an easy victory. Just saying, didn't take, didn't take an hour. They were all in the same room and they took them all out. And that was the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Still dancing, still drinking. Daniel puts it this way. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 
And Darius of the Medes and Persians received the kingdom. He was about 62 years old. Another chapter in Daniel ends with God being God. Hopefully, a bigger God than what you imagined when it started. If you want to thrive in a culture of injustice, we're not Babylonian, but boy, we're facing that way, aren't we? If you want to thrive in a culture of injustice, you, you, have, to, you have to understand what he did. Because if you don't, your blood will, let me just add, let's back it in this way. Does your blood boil at night of all the things that aren't right? I mean, politicians these days, they make laws, and in that very law, they say that law doesn't apply to us. As, I mean, what? <laughs> they, put it in the, they put it in the law. Now it's, it's not a race for who did something right or wrong or whether justice will prevail. It's who has the best lawyer. And if you have enough money, you can do almost any crime. And so if you want to, listen, if you want to thrive and not grind your teeth to sleep every night, then you need to do this, right? right? You need to not lose heart in the patience of God's justice. You do not lose heart in the patience of God's justice. Why did he write chapter 5? Because justice prevailed. And into a, a people, the Jewish people, were wondering how long the wicked would prosper. Chapter 5 shows up and says, when it's time, do not lose hope in the patience of God's justice. To this day. To this day, we say, the writing's on the wall. Came from this chapter, the writing's on the wall. We're still talking about God's patient justice. And when we say to someone, friend, the writing's on the wall, it means, oh, it's gone past choice. It's gone to fate. And, and you're, you're, you, you reap what you sow, and it's harvest season, my friend. There, the point of chapter 5 is there will be justice. There will be justice. And so, not to worry your pretty little heads if you study history about Pol Pot or Mao or Mussolini or Hitler or just Stalin or the guy you read about in the paper last week, and you're thinking, when, when? Some of you have had experiences where you are victims of evil, and you're watching the perpetrator thrive. He's, like, he's a deacon out of church somewhere. All is good. And you're wondering, where is there justice? And here's what keeps people from just hunkering down and resolving a belief in justice. They think, they, well, they want, a, they, want a, they want a cuddly God. This is the God they want. So when they imagine, and, it's, and he's all loving, you know what this passage says? This passage says he can't be loving without being just. His love requires justice or he doesn't love us. There's no concept of love without the concept of justice, and there's no concept of justice without the understanding of love. And, and we, we want one without the other. It's very common for people to think, I'll, I'll quote an author in just a few seconds, this gentleman was in Eastern Europe, and, and he wrote a lot about having real problems with some of the difficult passages in the Bible about God being so uh, wrathful, right? It was barbaric. Right? It's crude. It's not love. 
and he's from Croatia. And then evil rang his doorbell. And he had to rethink about the nature of God and the nature of justice. Here's what he wrote. He said, my last resistance to the idea, okay, he was opposed to the idea that God had wrath and God had justice. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war of my former country, Yugoslavia, the reign of which I come from. According, uh, according to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, 3 million people were displaced, my villages and cities were destroyed, people were shelled day in and day out for no apparent reason except to just, you know, pummel them. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. If he loves, he must be angry. And then he goes on. He goes, how about we just talk about Rwanda, which took place in the 1990s. 800,000 people were hacked to death with machetes in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in grandfatherly fashion, giving them a hug, now, now, you, you're just not understood? No. If God loved those victims, he had wrath towards the perpetrators. And here's what he said. Here's his conclusion. Though I used to complain about the... Uh, uh, what's that word? Yeah, thank you so much. Golly. Although I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, God's wrath, I came to think that I would now have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loving, in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. God is wrathful because he is love. Do you want to thrive in a crazy culture where evil prevails, where injustice seems to get away? then you have to understand this about God, that he is more loving than you thought, that he's more knowing than you thought, and he's more powerful than you thought, and he's more just than you thought. And the more he loves, the more committed to justice he is. We have to learn from the psalmist that we started reading from, and we, we, we have to stop meditating on the injustices and the evil taking place in the world, and we need to transfer our meditation being in the presence of the most holy God. Here's what he says. Here's how he got over living in a crazy world. He says, but when I thought about, when I thought how to understand why the wicked prosper, I, it seemed to be wearisome to me. In other words, I'll never sleep. I'll never get to the end of it. But until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they, have destroyed, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Stop focusing on evil and start focusing on the presence of God. The last book in the Bible is Revelation. The book is about this, justice. Uh, Harry Blumeyer says, it has to be at the end because God has a running total for so many people. And the consequences of their choices and their values are still being accrued. In other words, Hitler can't be judged because there are still Hitler youth to this day. And so he's got that on his tab, and it's still running. And at the end of time, everyone gives an account for their actions and the consequences for their actions. And you can't be protected by your psychological weirdness your lack of a conscience. You'll be exposed because that's what justice is. And if you look at the book of Revelations, look at the outline, going back to you should know. You knew this, Belshazzar, right? 
church is judged. You should know. Israel is judged. You should know. The people are judged. You should know. Have a hard time sleeping? With all that's going on, all the crazy, all that. Here, think about this judge. David, Daniel's God. This, this, this is in the red letter section of the New Testament. Jesus says this. Don't fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one that can destroy your body and your soul. I got this, he says. You having a hard time thinking back about some person that took advantage of you and they're running away with this and they're never going to get caught? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. What can you do anyway? You're not all that good. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You know how you live and thrive in a culture where injustice parades itself? It wears as an open garment and violence like a necklace? You think about the greatness of God and his most holy standard. And he, and he loves, he loves us, so he must be just. That's the lesson of Daniel chapter 5. That could change your life. Let's pray that it does. Lord Jesus, we, um, wow, this is powerful. Lord, I'd ask the people in this room uh, that cannot forgive people that have done some evil things or they've experienced evil in war or in relationships or in business, and they, and they just they toss and they turn. Lord, I'd pray that the God of Daniel chapter 5 would visit them, and they would, they would delegate to you. They would just delegate to you. Vengeance is mine. Just give it to me. I'll repay. Now relax. Now be at peace. Just hand this off so you can focus on being in the, in the, in the throne room of the great and loving, powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-just God, you do what you'll be accountable for. Lord, I pray that you would cause that to happen in our life. Let this story resound in our soul. Let it expand our definition of you so that we might be at peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.